team. Let's check them on. Okay. You know, we've, uh, we've been going through a series in Romans chapter 8, so if you want to grab your Bibles and, uh, and turn there, that would be good. Romans chapter 8. And we're going to jump into some, uh, some verses that, uh, that aren't often preached and yet have been called some of the greatest verses in the Bible. And so we're, uh, we're going to jump into that. And as a church, what we like to do is go through scriptures bit by bit because then we can, we can really learn, we can take these things apart. And it also uh, gives us good reason not to avoid things that are difficult. And so we live in a, a difficult world and the Bible has much to say about the, uh, the culture that we live in. So let's, uh, let's jump straight in. Romans chapter 8 and verse 12. And uh, hopefully this all, uh, this all works and it'll be, uh, you'll be able to see it on the screen as well. Romans chapter 8, so we're just going to go bit by bit. So then, brothers. Okay, let's stop there. So then, brothers. So then. Those two words tell us something really important. What it's referring to is the previous uh, 11 verses that we've been working through over the last three weeks. So then. What is it that Paul is referring to? First and foremost, in the first, first two or three verses... Paul is reminding us, and these aren't going to appear on the screen, you can, you can look at those later. Paul is saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That statement resonates all the way through this chapter. And so Paul is saying, because there is no condemnation, because we are in Jesus, these are some things that we need to understand. But they are, it's, this is an important pause for us because it doesn't refer to everybody. This passage is not for everybody. This passage, this chapter, is for those who are not condemned. So straight away, Paul is addressing something that is of difficulty in our culture. We live in a culture that says this, you're not good enough. You're not good enough, you need this. You need to be going there, you need to have this job, you need to look this way, you need to listen to this kind of music, you need to have this kind of religion, you need to have this kind of political view, you need to have this view on sexuality, and if you don't fit into that box, we are going to condemn you, you are not good enough, and Jesus, Paul is saying here that Jesus offers this no condemnation. Not only does our culture say that you are not good enough, we have a tendency to tell ourselves we are not good enough as a result of sin, of bad decisions, uh, things that bring us shame, regrets, those things that we just want to forget about that come up every now and again. Jesus says through the cross, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. However, you flick that verse around, it does say, I'm just uh, very quickly going over uh, the sermon from a couple of weeks ago, that there is condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. He's very clear. And so through the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus uh, uh, taking that sin, taking that sin and shame, and it dying with him, then gives us newness of life, no condemnation. That is for those who are in Christ Jesus. So then, those of you who are not condemned, But he also then goes on in that previous passage to talk about there's two ways to live. You can either live, Christians, you can either live with the flesh or you can live with the spirit. And this idea of flesh is the dominant sin in your life. It's not just lust and adultery and those things we think of fleshly. It's any kind of sin. He says, look, you can live through the lens of sin and flesh or you can live through the lens of spirit. 
and life. One is going to bring life to you and one is going to bring death to you. So the so then is referring to those who are not condemned and those who are also struggling between that flesh and sin. That flesh, uh, sorry, and spirit. So he goes on. So then brothers, let's stop there. Brothers speaks to something really, really important. It speaks to unity. Unity in two ways. First of all, we, in Christ Jesus, no condemnation, are united with God. Let's just stop and think about that for a second. The the God who breathed the universe into place says, you can be united with me. You can be one with me. This union with Christ, through Jesus, you can be one with God. Now, we're not Mormons. We're not running around as many gods trying to make really big families with lots and lots of wives. It's not that kind of God. It's the God Almighty, God with a big G, not a, not a cult God, but a, an actual real-life, ultimate, all-encompassing, beautiful God says, you can be united with me. I breathe the universe into place and you can be one with me. You see, even some of you may have that challenge when it comes to God being in existence. Is there really a God? Is there really a universe? You need to understand that even the greatest minds, the greatest uh, um, physicists have no answer for some of the primary things that happen in our world, like gravity. Like some of these laws that are in place There's no answer in science as to where they originated from. You see, we we agree as Christians there was a big bang. Absolutely. I have no problem with saying, yeah, God just said, let there be light. Boom. The beautiful thing is, is the universe is still expanding, scientists tell us. See, science is just catching up with the Bible. The universe is still expanding. God never said, okay, light, stop. It just carries on. Just carrying on. And so when that actually happens, science says, yeah, big bang, but they have no reason why. In fact, there has to be over 120 elements, 120 forces, 120 uh, uh, aspects of creation that had to be absolutely true to the millionth, millionth degree, like gravity and mass. All this had to absolutely be perfect. Otherwise, the universe would have ended as quickly as it began. And scientists have no idea how that happened. That God, the let there be like God, said, you can be one with me. And brothers, we are one because we are one with Christ. We are together. We are united. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are tied by something stronger than any biological human blood family. We are tied by the cross, the blood of the God Almighty who died on it. We are together. And you might not like this, but we're going to spend eternity together. Some of you can barely get through church together. Like, okay, wow, eternity. That, that, yeah, that's a long time. A really long time. We're going to have a new earth and a new heaven. We're not going to be wispy spirit things. It actually says, the Bible says, we are going to have life on a new earth, and you guys are all going to be together. We're brothers and sisters together in this. So this whole passage is looked through the lens of no condemnation, and we are together with God and with one another. So therefore, on the back of that, what does Paul have to say? That's just a whole sermon right there. Let's take a breath. So then, brothers... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The whole reason that we as Christians, and those of you who are still kind of thinking through what Christianity is, you're not sure what you believe, here's a window into what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about following rules. It is not about just believing a set of beliefs or values or things that kind of add to our family and our lives, just like our other activities, like going to the gym. Christianity is about union with God in His Spirit, being filled with the supernatural Spirit of God. That's what Christianity is about. That we are called to be united with Him, united with one another through His Spirit. And as a result of that, this word, we are debtors, we are no longer owing the world anything. What do I mean by that? It means that those things that tie me to the world, those things that pull me down, those things that bring oppression to me, those things that bring sin and shame and challenge and sin, as the Bible calls it, I'm not indebted to that. I don't need to follow after that. I'm free. I'm not a debtor to that. We owe that old life nothing. But then he talks about spirit and flesh. To live according to the flesh, you will die. See, the thing I love about the Bible is it's about as subtle as a brick through a window. Isn't it? We kind of, in our nice Western Canadian kind of culture, we want to tiptoe around things and go, well, you know, we just want to be gentle and loving because we're Canadian, you know, and I, I'm a Canadian, I'm a citizen, and, we, and I bought in totally to this, yeah, we're all friends, kind of, but, you know, well, let's do coffee sometime in the future. You know, that, that kind of, we're just gentle. Whereas the Bible hits this thing, just slams into it. He says this, you want to follow after the flesh, it's death. If you want to follow after the things, the spirit is life. Choose. Do you want to choose life? Choose the spirit of God. You want to choose death? Then you choose flesh. And like everything inside of us, as good Canadians, we kind of go, ooh, that, I, that's not very, can we just lead up? Can we ramp into that a little bit? Can, you know, maybe that's like three quarters of the way through a sermon. Let's have a good end to the sermon. That's not the first 10 minutes of a sermon that, that flesh equals death and spirit equals life. But, but let me just emphasize the spirit because we're surrounded by death. You only need to walk down our own city streets to see evidences of death may not be physical death, but it's certainly emotional and spiritual and psychological death. See, in Romans 1, it talks about a wrath now and a wrath to come. People are living in death. Hell is just going to be a trajectory to them of what they're already living. And it's going to trajectory into forever. So what is the spirit? Spirit is life. It's life for me now. It gives me the energy and the enjoyment and the joy and, and everything emerges from that. But it's also life giving that we together as brothers and sisters should be giving life to one another. That the, the scriptures talk about encouraging one another, building one another up, praying with one another, standing shoulder to shoulder together. Let's stop the criticism of one another. Let's stand and fight together because we're in a battle together. And what I do know about soldiers and fighting is there has to be a unity of direction. My, it's my life and I'm going to be trying to give life to you as well. So you you can survive so you can fight 
so you can enjoy what I'm enjoying, so you can lift me up when I'm going through a challenging time. And if we're pulling one another down and criticizing one another and kind of not wanting to be together and refusing to go to community groups or refusing to be united, what we're actually doing is we're helping the enemy. And it brings death. We should be bringing life and guarding that life-giving spirit. So how do we find this life-giving spirit? Certainly in the last hundred years, and it's ramped up in the last 20 years, what we've done as Christians is we have attached a certain worship style or a type of church or a certain methodology to spirit-filled living, to life-giving. So if I go to this church, I'm going to feel filled with the spirit of God. If I go to this church, I'm not. If I'm going to listen to this preacher, wow, I, I really feel filled. If I listen to this preacher, I'm not. And so what we've done is we've, we've, we've lifted up methodology and churches and style and we've rated it and gone, this is the way we do church. Whereas the scripture doesn't talk about methodology as to where we get this life from. It talks about this every day. In verse 4, it says, walking out the spirit of life. Every day, in Costco, Christmas Eve, 5 o'clock at night, Spirit of God right there. Do you not need that? I, I, I do. I made that mistake once. Never again. Never again. But it's as much in the moment when it seems like I'm nowhere near church as it is in the moment when I'm closest listening to a preacher that encourages me and makes me feel like I'm close to God in that beautiful worship moment that I can sense the Spirit of God every day, walking out daily. But we have choices. We have choices as to how we live our every day. Do we focus on the flesh or do we focus on the Spirit? Do we seek after life or do we seek after death? And frankly, there are things that we need just to stop doing. It leads to death. One of my uh, favorite things to do, we used to, it, it, it was called um, American's Funniest Videos. It's kind of morphed now into, uh, with, the, with the use of phones and, and different apps, you can just video people's mistakes right there and get it on the net before they've even finished falling. It's fantastic. And so I do enjoy watching Fail Army. I don't know if you've seen that on YouTube. I, Sarah can't watch it because she's like, it just never ends well. That's the point. It's great. It, they, yes, they're going to hurt. Oh, that looks like that broke. And then they always put the end. No, you know, like maybe nobody hurt themselves. No, somebody definitely hurt themselves. Plummeting 50 foot onto rock. I mean, don't judge me, but it's kind of funny. Um, just you like, and you're watching them line themselves up for disaster. Like, what are you thinking? And, and I'm not being sexist when I say this, but so many of them involve guys. What is it about guys that something switches off in their brain to think, yeah, that's going to work? Putting a ladder up against a roof, right, onto the ground. This lad is at the top with a snowboard on his feet, and he's going to snowboard down the ladder. Watched by all his buddies. Yeah, great idea, dude. This is going to end well. Except I don't think he was strapped in. It might, it might have actually been more of a wakeboard. Some kind of board. And he, and he gets halfway down. It slips that way. He gets his foot in one of the rungs, slams the ladder, face first, rolls. And what do all his buddies do? Laugh. I love it. What an idiot. 
And your thing is, is everybody watching would have gone, yeah, this isn't going to end well. Let's just let him get on with it. Let's get our phones ready. Love it. See, there's things in our lives where we can see in other people's, this is going to end badly. That decision, that direction, that place you are putting yourself in, that place you're going to, that relationship you're in, that thing you're reading, that thing you're watching, that is going to end badly. Slam. The Bible goes even further and says death. And it's sobering. Paul is saying, listen, we need to put to death these things. In a beautiful and amazing commentary that I've been reading by John Stott, on Romans 8. He classifies this life-giving, uh, sorry, spirit-filled living in two ways. He says it's a process of mortification and aspiration. In other words, he says, look, we have to put to death the things of sin and we have to highlight and aspire to things of the Spirit. We need to continually be on our guard and put into death those things that draw us away from Jesus and continually chase after those things that draw us to Jesus. One of those things by themselves is like a plane with one wing. It ain't going to fly. You need both in equal measure. However, our attitude towards sin and our attitude towards God, although it's together, there's an order to it putting to death the old nature and seeking after and setting our heart and mind and making God ultimate in our lives. There's two processes. They happen together, but both must happen in a certain order. Putting to death, seeking life. Putting to death the things of the sin, of the, of the flesh, those things that continually pull us down and seeking after God and looking for that joy that emerges as a result. It happens together, but in a certain Order. Let me show you very quickly how Paul does this through the New Testament. Colossians 3, verse 2. I'm going to go really quick, Dwayne. Uh, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Set your mind. That's that side. That's seeking after God. And then he says, later on in the same chapter, he says, Colossians 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly. So there's the two wings, the two processes together. Romans 8 verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So he said, look, we need to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, while at the same time, Romans 8 verse 13, put to death the deeds of the body. In Hebrews 12, it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And then later on it says this, you cast aside every weight and every sin that clings so close. There's a process. So the way that we become spiritually strong, the way that we live out this spirit-filled supernatural life is by putting to death the things of sin and seeking after and fixing our lives and our eyes on the things of the spirit. One without the other doesn't work. Mortification, John Stott said, and aspiration go together. Now then, here's what's really important. It does not say in any of these scriptures, it does not one thing, does not say once that we need to do more good. It doesn't say that doing more go, good actually creates life, spirit-filled living in our lives. It says, put to death, set your mind. Put to death, set your mind. Because here's the problem with doing more good. 
we can't do enough good to actually get close to God. In fact, I could argue that some of the good things that happen in this world, now hear me out, because I'm not being critical of the good things, but I am questioning sometimes the heart position as to why we do good things. Do we do the good things because they make us feel good and relieve some of that stress, pressure, and shame and guilt that we have? Or are we doing good things out of a motivation to highlight Jesus? There's a big difference. You can write a very large check and give it to an organization that is desperate, desperate for it. Wonderful. But what's the motivation for doing that? You can help somebody in need. Why? Why are you doing that? Does it actually, listen, does it actually change your heart position? Is your heart position changing? Now you could argue, well, yeah, it's good for somebody to be generous. I agree. But is it eternally, spiritually changing somebody's heart? Is it giving spirit-filled life as a result of doing more good? You see, that's the gospel by just working harder, doing more things. That's not how it works. How do we do this good? How do we put to death? Because I could say, right, sermon over, go and put to death those things in your life that are pulling you away from Jesus and give more life to those things that are good for you. Let's go. And you'd be going, okay, great. How? Because you've just told me doing more good does not help. The order is really important. In John 16, Jesus starts talking about one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. And I've used this illustration before, but the best way I can describe the primary role of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, outside of his day-to-day job of regeneration and conversion and everything else, is like, you remember when I showed you that picture of the Washington Monument with all the floodlights? I've used this illustration before, do you remember? And we look at the Washington Monument, we go, wow, that monument's amazing. And then we might go, wow, these lights are kind of cool, but the lights exist in order to make the monument look good. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in our lives and around us to point out Jesus. To make you fall in love more with Jesus. To make you fixate on Jesus. To make Jesus ultimate. The Holy Spirit is continually wooing us towards the monument. And it actually goes further. It talks about glorifying Jesus. The word glory literally means weight. means mass. And again, I told that story of when I fell in the river after this rock was, you know, I won't tell it again, but there's a rock in the middle of the river and the river is going around it. That's mass, that's glory. So the river doesn't go through it, it goes around it. And so what the Holy Spirit does is he sets up Jesus in our lives so that when our life hits Jesus, we go around Jesus, that Jesus has place in our lives, that our lives change direction as a result of him, and we're affected by him. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It highlights Jesus. Why do I preach sweatily every Sunday morning? It's to make more of Jesus in your life so the Holy Spirit would actually cause something to happen inside of us all that would give Jesus more weight. Because here's my simple theory. The more that we fall in love with Jesus, the more effectual we're going to be in our community. The more we fall in love with Jesus, the more committed we are to going to be going out and sharing the gospel. The more we fall in love with Jesus, the less lazy we're going to be in our community and our church. Because we're going to be looking for ways to use our gift and to go out and be impactful and represent Jesus. You've got to learn, you've got to know about this man, Jesus. He's changed my life. Where does that come from? From a love of Jesus. 
from a love of Jesus. The Holy Spirit does that. So, the Holy Spirit is causing us to fix our mind upon Jesus all the time. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of theology and doctrine, and I love reading stuff that challenges me in that way. But we do have this culture, especially in young adults, where knowledge is really important. Theology is really important. Apologetics are really important. I love all that. But they are there for one reason, to make much of Jesus, to make you fall in love with Jesus more. If it's there just to terminate on us, you're missing it. Church exists so that we may gather together as brothers, united with one another because of our unity in God, so we can make much of Jesus to one another. That's why, amongst other things, we exist. So that's why Paul says, set your mind on Jesus. He's saying the Holy Spirit will allow you to do that. So, what do we set our mind on? If we're focusing on setting our mind on Jesus, and that being the key to putting to death, what is it that we're setting our mind on? Well, Paul tells us in the first four verses, no condemnation, it's the gospel. So the more we pray the gospel, the more we read about the gospel, the more we sing about the gospel. That's why we Christians ignore going to biblical community. Biblical community is so that we can share the gospel with one another, pray the gospel into one another, share the gospel with other people. We come together to do that and it strengthens Christians. Christians in isolation are ineffectual. Together, we can point Jesus out to people But Paul is saying, what do we set our mind on? It's the no condemnation. Because outside of Jesus, we're not good enough. We're not good enough to ourselves. We're not good enough to the culture. We're not good enough to God because of the sin in our lives. But in Jesus, there's no condemnation. So what do we set our mind on? We set our mind on the fact that we have been called, we've been chosen, we've been saved, we've been filled, our identity has changed, we fill our lives with that. And the more we fall in love with good doctrine and good theology, we're going to fall in love with Jesus. The more we fall in love with Jesus, the more we start seeing what God sees. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in, uh, in Britain. He was actually a doctor, a medical doctor. And he, he pastored a church, uh, Westminster Chapel in London, amazing Bible teacher. And uh, I believe I had the joy of listening to him when I was about 12. Mum and dad took me to a conference. I wish I'd taken more notice. <laughs> Probably counting windows. But Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, talking about this text. Do you know what this text means? This text means, listen to this Christian, if you are a Christian, you must never let yourself feel condemned. You must never think you're condemned. You must never act like you're condemned. So setting our mind on Jesus is all about recognizing you are free. You don't have to live like the world lives. You don't have to think like the world thinks. You don't have to have their religious and uh, their views on sexuality. You are different. You are chosen. You are separate. You are holy. You are no longer condemned. You are free. You are free. You are, in other words, listen, you're good enough. In fact, you're not just good enough. You're good. Why? Because Jesus gave us as Christians his goodness. It's his goodness. It's his freedom. 
There's no condemnation for us because Jesus was condemned for us. And so we have this freedom. If you're not a Christian this morning, that you do not have that placement. You do not have that relationship. You do not have that identity. You are standing in condemnation, the scripture says. Well, we don't like that, but the same Bible that talks about the love of God talks about the judgment and justice of God. And God is just and he is loving. But he put that justice on Jesus. He put that condemnation on Jesus and it died with him. And as Christians, we at some point came to that, felt the draw, felt the call and submitted to that. And we need to start seeing what God sees. We need to see ourselves the way God sees us. That he sings over us. (laughs) Do you know what it says in the New Testament that Jesus sang four times? He's singing. Can you imagine how good Jesus' voice was? This is the perfect son of God. And he wasn't singing, Jesus take the wheel. Sorry, Wendy. He really wasn't. I guarantee you he wasn't singing country and western. But he must have had an amazing voice. The scripture says he sings over you. Some of you just switched off then. Doesn't like country and western? I'm not listening to anything else he says. I'm okay with that. <laughs> he says he sings over you. I used to go and watch Manchester United. Whole different kind of singing. And they used to sing over one another from different parts of the stadium. Manchester United and Liverpool. They'd be singing all sorts of things to one another. None of which were encouraging or building up. None of which were rejoicing. All of which were condemnation. Can I tell you, we live in a world that sings condemnation. And we serve a God that sings freedom and joy and love and passion and patience and mercy. Why? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. And we need to start seeing ourselves that way. And the more we see ourselves, the easier it is to put to death the sin that holds on to us. We need to see one another in the same way. We need to see this church in the same way. We need to see the world in the same way. No condemnation because Jesus was condemned. That's what we look at. Why does this help us though? Because it changes our motivation. You see, when we we recognize we have a sin in our life, what we tend to do is we we hit it with self, um, with, with, with willpower. So let's say you have uh, some kind of uh, sexual sin in your life. And you're like, right, now today, I'm not going to do that. Then you fail. Then sin and shame and rejection come into your life and, and you just get into this cycle. See, the question is not what do I do about this sin. The question is why am I sinning? What is it that I'm seeking for in this sin that is better provided to me by Jesus? I don't think some of you heard that. Let me say it again. What is it that I'm seeking in this sin that is better provided by Jesus? Am I looking for attention? Am I looking for worth? Am I looking for identity? Am I looking for freedom? These are the things that underlie the sins that grip us in life. Why do we lie? Why are we filled with fear? Why are we bitter? Why are we cynical? Why are we angry? Why are we gossiping? Why are we eating too much? Why is it that we do all these sins? The question is not addressing the sin itself, although that's important to recognize it, is to examine ourselves and go, why? Because it's better provided by Jesus. So as we focus on Jesus, he roots this out. 
fix our eyes upon Jesus and all he did, then we can put to death the sin in our lives. So let me finish with this. Three ways in which sin is put to death in our lives, all of which are enabled, empowered, facilitated, however you want to call it, by the Bible. I'm a Bible man. When I read this, it encourages me. It confuses me sometimes. I've got to find out what other people who are far smarter than me think about it. I've got to pray things through. I've got to learn it. I've got to meditate on it. I put it over what I think because it was written by somebody whose thoughts are far higher than my thoughts. Every part of this speaks about the gospel. Every word, every story, every sentence points to Jesus. And so when I read this, it does three things, amongst a lot of other things when it comes to sin in my life. The first thing is this, is it highlights those what I call the doesn't count sins. You know, when we look at sin, when we look at putting to death, it's, excuse me, it's easy to think of murder, lust, adultery, all those big sins. None of which, thank you very much, Glenn, I have an issue with. But you see, what it does, the scripture, is it starts highlighting that list that we all have of those sins that don't count. You know, it's the, it's the um, gosh, I could, I'm not going to give you a whole list, but I'm just going to give you an example. Some of the things that as a culture we go, well, no big deal. Everybody does that. What harm will it do? Well, according to scripture, it says it brings death. So we need to examine some of these sins. It's the sin of listening to uh, music that's explicit. It's the sin of lingering too long on that website. It's the sin of downloading music or videos or movies illegally. It's the sin of, you know, being cynical. One of the things that, and I don't want to embarrass my family, but I'm just going to tell you, this is, this is why it happens in our house. I think really good sense of humor often tips over into cynicism. Especially in, in the British culture, sarcasm and cynicism. And sometimes I notice in our family that it just starts to rise. We become very cynical of things that are going on in our workplaces or in people's lives or in the church. And we, we start jabbing. It's all under the umbrella. Well, we're just kind of making fun. No, it's wrong. It, it, it's wrong. Being overly critical. Lazy. All these are the, well... That's just the way I'm wired, sins. No, 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 it's not because your identity has changed. And so as we read the scriptures, things that the culture celebrate like narcissism and impatience and ambition and, and all these things that our culture highlights as good, you keep going, you tread on whoever you need to tread on to get on in life. All these things that are celebrated, the Bible as you read it goes, no, that, that's not right, that's not Jesus, that's not spiritual living that is not going to bring you life it's going to bring you death and it nags at you and it nags at you and then you confess it you examine yourself you recognize it you come to Jesus and you pray and ask for forgiveness that is what the communion represents his body and blood shed so that these don't count sins can be highlighted by the spirit of God through his scriptures so if you're not reading the word it's like you were avoiding on this uh, this this process where God takes the eternal highlighter and goes you need to sort that out let's do it together where are you at with that when was the last time you sat down and you said lord 
can you just start speaking to me about those don't, doesn't count sins, those little sins? Not the obvious ones. And I promise you, the Holy Spirit will start pointing them out as you spend more and more time in the Word. Number two, once you see it, you also have to starve it. One of my favorite movies is The Beautiful Mind. Um, I love that movie. I don't know if you've seen it. I would highly recommend you watch it. And this uh, Nash, the main character, who's a a brilliant professor, uh, struggles with uh, all kinds of medical issues, one of which is that he sees people that don't exist, which is kind of a problem because he listened to them for a large period of his life and he would do as they were told and it caused all sorts of acute issues. But later on in life, he started to overcome it. The amazing thing is that no amount of drugs would actually make those people disappear. He lived with them for his whole life. But this is what he said about those things, about those people that did not exist, but his mind was making up. He said this, quote, I've gotten used to ignoring them. And I think as a result, they've kind of given up on me. I think that's what it's like with all our dreams and all our nightmares. We've, just got, we've got to keep feeding them for them to stay alive. Oh, there's some truth in that. We've got to keep feeding them for them to stay alive. For the sins in our life, you've got to keep feeding them. If you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, if your identity and nature has changed, you've got to actively feed the flesh in order for it to stay alive. So therefore, common logic would say, stop feeding the flesh, starve it. Go on a sin diet. Cut out all the nasty. Pull out all the stuff that is ultimately killing you. We're motivated when it comes to that to our physical, uh, our physical lives, but when it comes to our spiritual lives, are you as motivated to put to death, to starve? Identify the triggers. If visiting this website results in you visiting that one, don't go on this one. If you struggle, then God will give you freedom in all this, but it starts with recognizing and starving it. That's why the scripture says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. It's hard work. It's hard work. Number three, and finally, so we have to starve the sin. We have to... Uh, we have to read the scripture so we can become sensitive to it. We have to starve it. And then finally, I'm going to finish with this. We have to overwhelm it with the gospel. We fix our eyes on Jesus. That enables us and empowers us to deal and put to death with the sin. You can't do this without that. That's why it says in James, submit to God, then resist the devil. Not, not resist the devil, then submit to God. Start here. Then you will be able to resist the devil but it's all overwhelmed with the gospel. I want you to leave knowing and understanding or at least being encouraged to dwell and meditate on this truth. That God has given us every resource we need to deal and put to death that sin in our life. And how has he done that? The scripture talks about him having perfect patience. Can you imagine that? Perfect patience. I haven't even got like an F grade patience with some things. He's got A plus perfect patience. And boy, he needs it when he looks at me. Because I keep messing up and I keep failing 
And I keep looking away. And I keep taking my attention on who I am. And I keep taking my attention off who he is and that I'm not condemned. And my mind keeps being drawn back to looking towards uh, mankind and, and, and the culture for reassurance that I'm worthy. I keep on doing this. And maybe you resonate. And this is what the scripture says. That he is perfectly patient with the process. That he's not given up on me. And he's not given up on you. And he loves you. And like the prodigal loving father, wrapping his arms around and hugging us, grace abounding, it says in Romans 5.20, towards you and me, that as we get caught up with this, then the sin and the death get starved and they don't become part of our lives and we become disinterested because we just want more of this. We want more of Jesus. Where sin increased, Romans 5 says, grace abounded all the more. Scripture says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you. You have the ultimate champion standing on the sidelines. No, running with you, in you, around you, saying, we can do this. Put your eye on the prize. Put your eye on that which he has died for, which is life and life more abundantly. Take your eyes off. Starve. Look for the triggers. Don't have anything to do with the sin and the death in the world. And life and hope and joy emerge as a result. It's really hard to proactively sin when you are passionately, energetically, proactively seeking out Jesus. Really hard. And as we, as John Stott said, mortify and put to death the sin in our lives, as we fix our attention upon Jesus, then this love and hope and joy emerge and we take that into the world. And it's a world that desperately needs to see it. Let's pray.